Clocks, Children, and Cinema. We watched Hugo. We are the film fellas. We watch random movies that you love, hate, or have never heard of, and then we talk about them. I'm Greg, and I have something special for you. It's in that place I put that thing that time. I'm Nick, and I do not know how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. I'm Caleb, and when I was a boy, my favorite Jedi was Kit Fisto, of course. But ever since 2019, you bet your sweet midichlorian count that honor belongs to Ahsoka Tano. I'm Robbie, and I had a Swiss watch I bought when I went to Switzerland. Let's get into it! Welcome, everybody. We are the Film Fellas. This week, we watched Hugo. This was my pick this week. This movie is directed by Martin Scorsese. It is from 2011. It is based on a book, The Invention of Hugo Cabret. It stars Asa Butterfield, Chloe Grace Moretz, Ben Kingsley. And I saw this movie when it first came out, and I remember really enjoying it. I wanted to share it with the fellas, and we will have a whole conversation about it. Let's start off with our one-sentence summary. This week, we are going to go Robbie, Nick, Greg, Caleb. A young boy finds his place in the cogs of 1930s Paris as he desperately tries to find the secret to the automaton left behind by his father. Wow. That was a one-sentence summary. (laughs) When's the last time we had like a true one-sentence summary? I like that. Well, somebody likes to go on and on with run-on sentences. Yes. I do it a lot. You can't tell me what to do. I cannot. (laughs) Nick, what do you got? My one-sentence summary is... Oh my God, Martin Scorsese did a children's film? (laughs) (laughs) There's a lack of gangsters. Did you guys expect it to be PG? That's crazy. (laughs) I was completely shocked and I was happy. (laughs) My one sentence summary is two kids discover the magic of cinema. Also, there's a robot. (sighs) Oh. My one sentence summary is goes a little like this. I was doing some research and I found out, guys, Hugo is an acronym. And stick with me on this one because the story is Hunchback of Giving Oscars. Five of them to be exact. What? Uh, with a U. Hunchback of is with a U because phonemically it works. Don't don't at me. And then giving Oscars. All right. Because Those that some, is how I would sell uh, this one. Fine one sentence summaries. <laughs> Three good ones and then one questionable. <laughs> huh? Debatable. Mine was pretty questionable. You're right. You got to bites into it, Greg. You know, don't get down on yourself. You can't Thanks, have, buddy. You can't all have good one sentence summaries. I know how a few feel. All right. We're going to get into our synopsis now where we're going to try to go through the whole plot of the movie and probably miss a lot of things because there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. We're going to go one by one and try to make it happen. Spoilers ahead, people. Though this film be nine years old, consider this your spoiler warning. The timestamps will be in the description of whatever podcasting tool you are using. So we open up on this wide shot of Paris that sweeps down into this train station and it sweeps through the train station and you see all these people and trains and all this hustle and bustle. And then it goes up to this clock and peering out of this clock is this little kid, Hugo, who is just viewing everything that's going on in the train station. And he runs around and he runs through all these tunnels behind the walls and everything because he mans all the clocks in this train station. And he goes and he looks through this other section of clock and he sees this toy maker and he sees this toy that he's working on and he's like, 
I need to get me some of that. So he waits until it looks like the guy has fallen asleep because he's a fairly older gentleman. And he sneaks over and he tries to take it. And he wakes up and he goes, ha ha, thief, I've caught you. How many things have you stolen from me? And he makes him turn out his pockets and he steals his notebook. And he says, get out of here. I'm going to call the station inspector. And he's like, give me back my notebook. And he's like, station inspector. Fellas. So then out of nowhere, Sasha Baron Cohen comes out, the station inspector, and a really cool Doberman. And the Doberman goes and chases Hugo with these really cool shots of like, it centered on the Doberman's face while it runs down hallways. I really like that part. Hugo goes and sneaks into his wall again because he lives there. And he takes care of the clocks in the train station. And he's all he's all sad because the boy, the <laughs> old man who runs a shop, he says he's going to go and um, burn Hugo's little book. Uh-oh, that's not good. So Hugo then follows him out of the station at the end of the day, goes to his home, and he goes, I'm going to burn this book. Get out of here, kid. Goes inside. He looks up. Oh, my gosh. It's clearly Grace Mortez. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. I was going to say Mortez. I'm like, that's definitely not her name. Nope. <clears throat> anyway. Right. Hit, so he sees Hit Girl in a window and starts throwing rocks okay. at her. Fellas. So it turns out that this girl, called Grace Moretz, is the actress. Isabel is her name. She lives with the old man and... Hugo tries to convince her to try and sneak in and get his notebook back for him. And she says, like, why is it so important? And he goes, well, it just is. It's, it's very important to me. Um, and she says, well, I'll see what I can do or something to that effect. And Hugo goes home and we are treated to a little flashback where once Hugo gets back to his dwelling inside this big clock in the train station, we see that there's a, a little robot, an automaton that he's been apparently trying to restore for quite some time. And this is where we get that flashback and we see that his father and him, back in the day, his father was a clockmaker and the two of them worked on this automaton because his father found it in a museum that they gave it to him and it didn't have a home. And so they tried to restore it. They get all the gears together. And then his father dies in a fire very tragically and quite suddenly. And Hugo was dragooned into the service of taking care of all these clocks in the train station by his inebriate uncle, who has been missing in action for many months, leaving Hugo to be working on all the clocks and keep them running. Fellas. So Hugo is still distraught over the fact that his notebook is gone, but he's relying on the fact that the girl said that she would try and prevent her guardian from burning the book. And so the next day he shows up and he's talking to him. He's like, hey, I, I would like my notebook back. And he goes, tell me who wrote in this book, who made these drawings. Tell me where you stole this from. And he wouldn't tell him. And so finally he reaches down and he gives him a folded up piece of fabric and he unfolds the fabric and all you see is this beautiful shot of all this ash just floating away. The <gasps> obvious implication being that he did indeed burn the book, the ashes. So he gets all upset and he leaves. And uh, while he's leaving, he runs into the girl and the girl's like, hey, what's wrong? And he's like, he burned the book. The book is burned and I don't have anything left. And she's like, he didn't burn the book. He just lied and he made a trick. I'm not sure why, but maybe if you go over there and you just, you know, stand up to him, he'll talk with you. So he goes back to the guy the next day and is like, I want my notebook back. And the guy looks at him and goes, 
fix it and puts this toy up there that's broken wind-up toy. And because he was a clockmaker's son, he's really good at fixing things. So he ends up fixing it. He's like, okay, I'm going to take you on as my apprentice. And so now he has to try and work off all the stuff that he's stolen from him. And maybe, just maybe, if he does a good enough job, the old man will give him the book back. As he does so, he sees this little boy walk across and uh, it's another orphan boy, only this one gets taken in by Sacha Baron Cohen, who picks him up as like, no, no, you're going to the orphanage because you've got to go back there. And so he takes him and throws him into a cage and waits for the other guys to come pick him up uh, with a great comic relief. Bellas. So Isabel and Hugo are hanging out because he's like, oh, I've been working for your grandpa, Papa George. And she's like, he's not my grandpa. I just stay with him. And so they're, they're hanging out. They go to the bookstore run by Christopher Lee, who is perfectly willing to just let you take books as long as you're cool. <laughs> and enjoy books <laughs> and she's like i never go on adventures except in books and he's like well what about the movies and she's like i never go to the movies and hugo's like you've never been to the movies we're going to the movies so they leave the train station which hugo rarely does and they go to the cinemas and they go see safety last by harold lloyd and they have a good time they're like oh look at this crazy stuff he's climbing up this clock oh adventure and comedy and good times and then the theater manager catches them and goes how'd you get in here because they snuck in and they're like, geez, it's the fuzz. <laughs> that exact line. And then they uh, go back to the train station and they're walking and the inspector comes and he's like, oh, just act natural. And he takes her hat and he puts it on and he's walking and he's like, excuse me, children, where are your parents or where are your adults? Your designated and, adults. And, and uh, <laughs> Isabel's like, oh, I work with the old man at the toy maker stall. You might have seen him. And this is my cousin from the country. Well, he looks so familiar. Oh, he's a little slow, if you know what I mean. And he's like, hmm, right, 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 right. And then he uh, takes off. Tell us. So after Isabel's crazy slam poetry session, she ends up convincing Hugo to show her his cool abode because he's been to her house a while can she go to his house and it's in the train station and the air is very not safe for a human to be in. And she sees the automaton who will. And it turns out that Isabel has the key to the automaton, a little heart shaped key, which is the only piece that Hugo needed to make it work. And he's like, where am I going to get it? Hey, deus ex machina. The girl you just met has it around her neck. Oh my God. So crazy. He turns it on and the machine actually starts working. And the whole point of the automaton is to do a drawing. We don't know that. It's supposed to write, but it starts to do weird things all around the page, which looks... Symbols and stuff. Yeah, it looks very abstract, and you don't know what's going on. And then it stops randomly. Hugo has a temper tantrum because he can never fix it, even though it's the last thing his father ever had with him. But then it starts again because they just needed the dramatic tension. And then it, it does a drawing, and it's a picture of a moon with a rock in its eye, and then it gets signed. George Milliers. Isabel's like, oh! Oh, that's Papa that's, George's name. That's Papa George's. <laughs> so they decide to um, take the page to Papa George and um, see what happens there. Bellas. So they take the drawing to Papa George's, who is not there, but Mama George gets all uh, uppity about it. And she goes, oh, no, you can't see it. There's, there's sometimes there's just pain that, that you can't take back or the, there are moments that the words don't reach or, you know, she says something dramatic and everyone's wondering why, why, why is this? But then Papa George comes into the apartment and 
Isabel and Hugo have to hide quick, so they hide in Papa George's study. And this is the moment where Hugo realizes, oh, wait a minute, we're in his study. I could probably get my notebook back. And so they're looking in whatever the French word for wardrobe is. I think it's a closet. Yeah, they're looking. Yeah, <laughs> they're looking in you had it right. Le <laughs> yeah. closet. Well, closet is more like a any belly button. This is more like a wardrobe <laughs> with an Audi belly button. <laughs> and so, yeah, they're looking. They're looking in this piece of furniture and uh, and they see a, a big chest in a secret compartment. And so uh, Isabel pulls it out and she drops it and a bunch of papers go flying. And it's a bunch of really creative drawings from times past. And that's the moment where George, Papa George decides to come into his study. And he he's very upset. He's seen all of his work and he goes, oh, my work. And then he starts, you know, taking up takes up all the pages and he's uh, he's start to tear him but mama george goes no you worked so hard on him and he says well why i'm just a penniless merchant now and the scene ends somewhere around that point for a couple days later christopher lee tells hugo hey if you want to know more about movies you should go to this movie library and check out this particular section and that'll let you know everything you need to know to progress the plot forward. Fellas. MacGuffin well in hand, the pair head off to this grand library and they pull out a book and they start flipping through the pages. And it's a, this history of filmmaking with uh, George, what's his last name? Yeah. Mille. with george Mayer, and uh it's all these cool films that he did and, and she's like oh papa george did all these and they're reading through it and then they come to a weird passage where it says that he's dead and they're like well he's not dead you know he obviously not he's my godfather and somebody behind him goes oh we just really? saw him <laughs> yeah. they're like oh really well i can t- assure you he's dead and they're like nah and he's like well when i was a kid i followed him around and uh, he took me over to his studio and it was like an enchanted castle and it's this really cool glass workshop where the stage was set that he did all of his movies on and there's a flashback to him being very happy and putting on this grand show and he's like i really wish that i could see him and they're like do do you want to meet him and he's like yes so he goes and follows them to their house and uh he meets with uh, mama jean and uh he's (laughs) like well uh you know i'm really happy to be here i was a great fan of your of your husband's work and she's like oh he can't see you like, but, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And apparently she was one of the head actresses. And so she was also in the business. And then before he could leave, he comes in and says, well, before I leave, do you want to see a movie? And she's like, oh, there aren't any left there. They were all destroyed. And he's like, no, there's one left. I have it. And she's like, of course, I'll watch it. And so they go and they sit down and they watch uh, the man on the moon or to the moon. The Man to the Moon. A Trip to the Moon. Yeah. a trip. There we go. They were watching A Trip to the Moon. And you got to watch it, and she starts crying because she remembers it and was so happy. And then who walks in but her husband, Phyllis. Papa George is like, I used to love making movies, but then the industry beat me down and everything is so sad. And he goes into his whole history. He's like, I used to be a magician on stage with a magician. And I built this automaton because I was into all kinds of cool stuff like that. And then one day I was at this fair and I saw the uh, cinematograph. And it was the Lumiere brothers had created this movie projector. And this was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. And he's like, I will give you all this money to let me have one of these. And they're like, nah, 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 it's just a fad. It's not going to work out. And he's like, screw you. So he reverse engineers it, makes his own. And he spends all his money on this big glass 
soundstage because you have to let in a lot of light. And he uses all of his magic techniques and his artistry and everything to make these fantastical movies. And he's having a great time telling the story of how he uh, invented all these editing techniques and did all this fun stuff with his wife. And he was young and everything was great. And then the war happened and people had come back from the war and they had seen real shit. And they didn't want to see his fantastic movies anymore. So people stopped going to see his movies. And he's like, and then I gave it up and I moved and I opened up a toy stop in the train station. Fellas. Subplot we never talked about. Sasha Baron Cohen's character, the station inspector, has a crush on the flower girl. And that's not really important, but I just really like that part of the movie. At one point before they go and do the movie thing, Hugo and Isabel are up in um, one of the one of the clocks about the station. Hugo drops a wrench. And the inspector goes, hey, whatever Hugo's uncle was, Uncle Claude, you drunk? Are you inebriated up there? Are you drunkard? And uh, Hugo doesn't say anything. That comes up now. Because out of nowhere, after the film thing, um, they find Uncle Claude's body in the river. And he's been there for a couple months, apparently. Ooh, the inspector gets a call and goes, oh, that's weird. Who's been fixing the clocks in the stitch home? Whoa. Anyway, Hugo decides to go and bring up Georges Millier's Papa George, <laughs> his spirits by going to get the automaton because it's the last thing he had. And he goes to the station, he grabs it. Out of nowhere, Sasha Baron Cohen, whoa! The station inspector chases him. Hugo earlier had a dream about him getting hit by a train. And then like, it was almost marionette where he drops the automaton in the train tracks. He goes and jumps down to go grab it. Oh no, a train's coming. But the station inspector pulls him out just in time. And then he's sitting there with Hugo. Where are your parents? You need to go to the orphanage. That was really bad. Don't judge me. I'm not an accent kind of guy. <laughs> Fellas. So the inspector is shaking Hugo down and he's talking, oh, you'll go to the orphanage and you'll learn all this things, like just like I did. And Hugo is, is pleading with him, please, you have to listen. This is like the last piece of, of my father and I have to, I have to know. And because this whole time, his, the link with him and the automaton has been directly linked to his father because it was his father's last great work that they were working on together. And that is a time where Papa Georges and Isabel come in and say, oh, actually, that boy belongs to me. And the inspector sort of sees reason and lets you go, go. And <clears throat> <laughs> sorry. Very nice. So he lets you go, go. And... Then we cut to a few months later where the author of the book that Isabel and Hugo were reading about the history of film has made sort of an expo of all of Georges Méliès' films and it's been revealed that they searched high and low and far and wide and they found 80 of his films instead of just one and they show it to all these people and everyone's excited and they have a party at Georges Méliès' apartment and all is right with the world. And we close out on the automaton that started it all and ended it all. The end. Hooray! Good job, Ooh. everyone. Yay. Yay! So, fellas, first and foremost, let's get into the obvious question. Automatons, cool or creepy? Cool. A little, little bit of both. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> when they were closing out on the automaton, I was expecting it to wink. Mm. And it sort of, because it like held out on the automaton's blank expression for so long that I was thinking, mm, if it winks right now, I will not be surprised. Go on, wink. Do it. 
do it. And then it just uh, it went to credits. I had read that the costume designer made it a tiny tuxedo for the party, well, but they cute. decided not to use it last minute. Oh, why not? Uh-huh. Well, seriously, now, now we uh, need the Scorsese ever... cut. Wait, at, at first, at first, I didn't think it was creepy until the scene where Hugo turns into the automaton in his dream. Then I'm like, that thing is horrifying. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah, but that was rad. Seriously though, well, what did what did everyone think? Mm, I, it was I really good. It. Bunch of film propaganda. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it too. It really made me like... think of Pan's Labyrinth a little bit in the fantasy. Yeah, but less dark. It made yeah. me think of all the books I read in fourth and fifth grade school because it really feels like a book and Turns out it is. Yeah, and it turns out it is. So, I mean, I was not surprised, but I just think it's a great mystery that keeps sort of unfolding. Mm-hmm. I read this book in fifth grade, but oh. it was one of those books where it was assigned reading and not for fun reading. Mm-hmm. So, I really didn't read it. I just remember, like, the automaton and movies. And then, oh, So, it does go into the history of movies and everything. Yes. And then cool. uh, watching the movie, I'm like, so, oh, yeah, stuff happened. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I just the book cover was the automaton, and then they like did a really faithful recreation of the original drawing of it. Nice, oh groovy. There's no way that clock or machinery inside the automaton could draw anything like that. Yeah, dude, those are real. Yeah, what you can look those up. Those are yeah. legitimate things that they did, and they drew that kind of complicated stuff. But there were so many lines. Yeah, what I is mean- that? If you wind it up correctly and you have those like micro gears, you can set it up like that. It would take yeah, dude, forever, but it Google would be automatons, done. Those are real things. And they're little robot kids like that. And they draw stuff. Boom. It's crazy. That, Cause I was thinking like big knowledge bomb, you know, like when you do a music box and each little peg <laughs> for each movement. Yeah. yeah. It's the amount of lines it took to draw that. Yeah. Which I guess yeah. there are like a bunch of like mini gears in that and the whole thing. I was like, that is so much like effort for what yeah. you get. Yeah, that's why they cool. were so mm-hmm. amazing at the time. Because th- they were. They were like ma- masterpieces and you would come, you would travel to go see these things and they would just sit there and they would just do the one picture that you set it to. And then you would change out the music box type thing because that's what the pattern is. It's the gears and that center thing that kind of look like a spine. As those rotate, the pattern determines where the hand's going to go. So, because I was, I was really interested after I watched this, I looked it up and... Although for this particular movie, they hooked it up to a computer chip to help it. It was still functioning as an automaton. But the original automatons could do that. It would just it would take them between 45 minutes and an hour per picture. And Mm -hmm. so you would just sit there in an audience and watch this mechanical thing draw for an hour. When it was first drawn, I like kept thinking about those like America's Got Talent things where they draw something upside down you're like not sure what it is until they flip it over yeah they're doing like just the little lines of the moon at first like oh what is it Mm -hmm. it's like those videos you see where someone is just drawing nonsense and then they draw one line that connects everything you're like oh wow yeah flower there was was something of that foreshadowing in this movie because um papa george's stand to his left he has a picture of the moon Mm. like the same like moon face yeah toy shop and then he draws it there like, oh. I like the foreshadowing in the first flashback when he's remembering working with his dad and there's just like flickering light and the projector sound. It's like, oh, this is going to be about movies coming up. Mm-hmm. It's not that yet. 
Mm-hmm. Which, were also- you guys waiting for that? Because I was like, do you guys want to watch a movie about the, the history of film? Yeah, I was wondering why. <laughs> you're like, what is this? Like, this where is about this, trains and where shit. Where does this fit into the puzzle piece? I totally yeah, I had no clue when, when that was going to happen. I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> this was fun for me because I knew a lot of this information. And I was like, ooh, I'm going to tell these guys about this. Oh, nope, the movie told them. Okay, I'm going to tell them about this. Nope, the movie told them. <laughs> this is a pretty comprehensive... Uh, comprehensive pretty awesome history? Yeah. So, yeah, this... What I wanted to ask, primarily Greg, who has this knowledge, how much of this is factual? How much of it's made up? Most of it's factual, actually. I don't know about this Hugo kid, but the George Mier stuff is all very factual. After the war, people stopped wanting to see his movies. He kept trying. He... Here's the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, the history of cinema. It, it's debated box. about who was the actual creator of the cinema camera. If it was the Lumiere brothers or Thomas Edison or Thomas Edison stole it because he's history's greatest thief. Yes. But I think it's a, it's a example of parallel thinking. They both kind of came up with it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, the Lumiere brothers used to just show mundane things like the train arriving at the station or they have one where a bunch of workers are exiting a factory. And that was like, it was, oh, this is new and exciting and moving things. Slaps. But they thought it was going to be like it says in the movie, it was just going to be a uh, fad. It'll be over pretty, pretty quickly. But when George Mier saw it, he saw it. He's like, I see the potential in this because he's a magician. He's like, I can film magic tricks. It'll be cool. People will see that. And I read a thing. I don't know if this is true, but after he did that, he was also shooting just kind of regular stuff and he was shooting outside and a bus was driving by and the camera jammed. So he mm-hmm. stops and he fixes it. And uh, when he starts shooting again, there's a hearse going by. And he didn't think anything of it. But then when he developed the film, there was like that cut between the two cars. And he's like, oh, I can do all kinds of things with these cuts. So George Mies invented so many things. He invented the split screen, which is how he was doing those cool things with like the multiple heads of the same person on screen. And he invented oh, the dissolve and like the multiple exposures and that kind of thing. And just all these ideas that had never been created. He's like, oh, I can do all these great things. And he was pumping out movies and Really, you talk about the Lumiere brothers and George Millet when you first learn about cinema. And then Edison, because he was the guy who would get patents on everything. And he was trying to he basically tried to have a monopoly on filmmaking, which is why we have Hollywood. Because filmmakers were like, we're not going to pay you money to make our movies. We're going to go across the country where your lawyers can't reach us. And that's why we have Hollywood in Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Sorry, that was a whole long spiel. Yeah, but like... <laughs> I feel like it was needed. Yeah. I, I really like the scene where he like cuts the film the first time. Like we see him cut it to like show where the head pops off and pops back on. Or yeah. Like, he's no, no, like, where he I cuts, can... cuts out the skeletons. That's it. Yeah. We can mm-hmm. stop here and then put in these pyrotechnics and have them explode and stuff. Mm-hmm. I love how the actors are like, so like almost unsure of what to do just because it's such a different style of like, it's movement. never been done before. Mm-hmm. It looks so, like the film really played up the fact that not only was it new, but it was very whimsical. Everybody seemed to be in awe, like a child, like our main character. And so the difference between how bright the color palette one, 
like the color palette of the movie for the most part shifts between these warm golds inside the warmth of like the station and the cool blues of the clock tower and the outside where it's like cold and bleak and it's very jagged but when uh we cut back to these flashbacks instead of being desaturated like a lot of flashbacks are instead we see all this bright color in these characters that are normally so dour because George is happy and he's energetic and excited. And then as it shifts back into when he's talking and it shifts back to another picture of him, the color palette again is kind of muted. I really love the use of color as subtext in this film. And also like, I'm sure we'll get into it later, but with Gustav, the train inspector, like, oh, I, name? I thought it was just, uh, it's just, yeah, he's just credited as station inspector. Could be Gustav somewhere, but yeah, because he gets told by uh, the flower girls like, "Be nice," and he's like, "Okay." Um, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's Gustav for Gustavo, but uh, regardless, Sasha Baron Cohen's character. Yeah, um, his getup is this bright blue, and which again ties back into his fear of getting captured. And so there's this character walking around in all these golds and warmth, and he's kind of a cooler shade. Mm. And then what I also like is the foreshadowing about his characterization, because for the most part, he comes off as, oh, what's the stereotype character? A very stiff and rigid and like uh, authoritarian. The Javert-esque. Yeah, the one that chases down the kids to send to the orphanage, that kind of harsh exterior. But the foreshadowing is with his leg. It's almost like a clockwork leg, that brace. And it's interesting, like, obviously clockwork's a huge theme, but I really like the fact that it really, it plays up the fact that he also has these mechanical things tying him down that kind of gives him a different dimension. So he's not just the cold inspector, but he's actually a person. So I really. While like we're that. on that subject, what do you guys think all the clockwork and gears and everything represented? Well, then you go bring that up, like how everything, like when the clocks have a place and there's a purpose for each piece, and he's like mm-hmm. trying to find his own purpose in the world. Like when he's talking with Isabel, looking through the clock tower at the city of Paris, he's mm-hmm. just like, "I wonder where I fit in," and then she goes, "I, well, I wonder where I fit in," and he goes, "Okay." <laughs> he doesn't give like, her an answer. I was having a me moment. You really shoehorned yourself in there, didn't you? I really think it's probably a mixture of society and time. I like the thought process of it being that like everyone is a cog in this machine. The opening shot to the movie is clockwork that slowly dissolves into the skyline of Paris. Yeah. And so I mean, right out the gate, it shows like, hey, there's going to be symbolism here. Watch for symbolism. It's their opening shot. And Mm -hmm. they keep going. Like whenever he's looking out to see what's going on, it always cuts to his perspective behind a clock face. Like he's behind a number of the clock or he's always holding on to something. Yeah, peering out. Yeah. And so it's like, and he says himself, like he doesn't know where he fits in because there are no spare parts. Machines don't come with spare parts. Every part has a place and has a purpose. And so he's trying to figure out his, which again is why I like the fact that um, as the show continues with the color palettes and stuff, it always goes back and you see clocks a lot in the background. They're not like center stage, but sometimes like things look broken or the gears are exposed in some mm. of the more dramatic moments. And then they're all 
nice and pretty when it's like looking out to see how the side characters are interacting. Because I really like the side characters too. The ones that I don't even think the others have a name. They're little B-plots like the... Yeah, which we didn't even bring up. Yeah. Which um, uh, I was going to talk about. I think that the gears and everything represent connectivity between all of these stories and how they're all interconnected in this train station and this whole story because mm -hmm. everything that's going on with our main characters does kind of affect the side characters and... Hugo finds this automaton who happened to be owned by George Millet, who he meets his goddaughter, who happens to have the key to make it work. And there's all this just connectivity happening in the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's my interpretation. Uh, yeah. yeah. We are cogs in the great machine that is the story of humanity. Yeah. Or at least the train station. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, um, only if you happen to live in Europe. So, what was your guys' favorite one of our C-plots? Oh, I know. The station inspector talking to the guy he's giving the orphan to. And <laughs> yeah. The, 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 guy, <laughs> the guy who learned about how his wife is pregnant and he, and Sasha Baron Cohen's character. was the last time you had goes, relations? <laughs> like, was it in this year? And he goes, no. He's like, oh, good luck there. Are you sure you want her back? And he goes, yes, I love her. <laughs> he's like, ah! <laughs> She's Late, she not you. Later on, when he's talking to him again, the guy's in the cage, he's like, oh, he basically continues this. He's like, oh, so, oh, you think it's yours? Oh, that's great. Well, we'll find out in seven months. So not only has he not slept with her in a year, but it's been two months since she got pregnant. So it's <laughs> like, <laughs> it's great. I think Which, uh, also, real quick, while we're on that specific scene, the person on the phone, he's talking to the inspector and the inspector says something like, oh, in March, I usually never plan that far ahead. Was that a reference to Casablanca? Because that is my favorite line in Casablanca is when, Ooh, could uh, be. when Humphrey Bogart, they're like, hey, how about this? And he goes, oh, I never plan that far ahead. Because this anyway. movie references all kinds of previous cinema. Mm -hmm. That was the line that was like, shoot, I, I bet I missed <laughs> a ton of movie references. Oh, yeah. Because that happens right at the end. Uh, I think I'm trying to decide if it's the... The dogs or the flower girl? Whose name is Lysette. Yeah. Played you by see. Emily Mortimer. I think it's the guy trying to get close to the woman who owns the dog, and the dog oh, doesn't yeah. like her. That <laughs> one's like my favorite. So he's like, I'm going to get a different dog, and they're going to be best friends, and then I can talk to this lady I'm interested in. I love his name. It's um, Monsieur Frick. Yeah. Monsieur, <laughs> Monsieur <laughs> Frick, but I just refer... I, Refer to him in my mind as Winston Churchill because that's what I thought <laughs> of the first time I saw him. Yeah, that guy's been a lot of stuff. He's good. He unfortunately is shaped like a cartoon character. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can uh, see why you saw Winston cast. Churchill. Yeah, uh, Richard Griffith, a <laughs> legendary good. actor. Yeah, passed away 2013, I believe. Oh, but uh, yeah, what a what a tremendous body of work. That was probably my favorite. Over 92 of credits. That was probably my favorite one of the C-plots was the dogs, especially because it's like at every point, they both obviously like each other. And then the yeah. only thing in the middle of them <laughs> is this dog that just will not obey. And so he's like, I have a dog. And so the dogs look at each other. They circle each other. They smell each other and they sit down. And both of them are like, oh, it's a miracle. <laughs> we can talk. <laughs> it was yeah, great. The cutest couple of dogs, by the way. I mean, mm -hmm. got some tremendous dog actors in this one. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know the names of the dogs. They were probably in the credits that Netflix um, skips over. The female dog owner, um, Madame Emily. I love her like little scene with um, the inspector 
when she like calls a smile um radiant yeah. and then <laughs> that's him up to go right talk to lizette and then his leg oh no 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 that's the one where he like is all about the smelly flowers are the flowers yeah. smelly do they smell like smelly flowers? <laughs> you really screwed the pooch on that one. Smile. Some serious game. I like, I am smiling. Oh dear. <laughs> Show me your when, best uh, smile. I figured out this was a children's movie. The second he fixed the mouse and it turned into stop motion, I'm like, oh, okay, it's one of those. <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. This stop movie use, utilizes all kinds of filmmaking techniques. It's got practical effects. It's got great CGI. It's got stop motion. It's got miniature work. Like it just melds mm-hmm. all these things together in this love of cinema. It's this movie is a love letter to, to cinema I and it uses train. every piece of like filmmaking techniques to make this beautiful, gorgeous movie. Mm-hmm. So as far as miniatures go, what Nick was talking about, I think was when Hugo dreams that the train goes off the rails and starts careening through the train station and it falls out of like the second story window. Was that a miniature? Yep. Just want to call my shot there. That what, sometimes was the I know intro, what I'm looking at. I have a question. Was the intro CG? Like when it's first going, the, to the intro was CG. Okay. It was really it screwing with me. A year and 1000 computers to render that uh, opening 2011 sweeping oh, wow. shot. And the year after was a uh, avatar. That's crazy because I was watching because they're sweeping in through the train station Mm. and they're talking about like, well, they get these actual people. We just had them walking on treadmills with green screens behind them so we could comp them into the footage. And it's Mm. crazy how everything is cut. And the first shot where Hugo is running through the back corridors and like going down the slide and everything. That's just like a bunch of different shots that are digitally kind of stitched together. And it's Mm. straight, great filmmaking. Mm hmm. Which, by the way, can I just interject the fact that that uh, place that he was in, the clock tower, just, it was like a child's fun house. It had a slide. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah like that part of the movie, like the first 20 minutes or so in the intro, the first act, they really make you think that this movie is going to be entirely about Hugo and why he's in the clock tower and what he does there and that kind of thing. And the probably took a big portion of the book because it's fun all by itself but then sort of changes gears if you will to be all, all about <laughs> cinema but i just i really love that part when he's just sort of we're exploring the eaves of the train station along with him you guys want to know my favorite part yes what is your movie stuff yeah. My favorite part is at the beginning when the inspector is chasing Hugo and they go through the restaurant and yes. it's like, this it cuts to this part. cake and you're like, oh, he's going to run into that cake, but there's a cake fake out and he doesn't <laughs> run into that cake and he runs into the musicians instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have that in my notes. I wrote right here, cake fake my... out. Mm-hmm. I have a similar, yeah, the cake into the cello edit gag. The old <laughs> cake into the cello edit because it's such like, if you blink, you'll miss it. And you won't realize what happened, but it's just a very simple edit. We see the inspector and he's going, whoa, and we see the edit of the cake. Oh, he's going to hit that mm-hmm. cake. And the next shot is like him sticking his leg into that cello. Yeah. yeah. Like really, <laughs> really quick. It's just a little treat. Yeah. Paying attention so, to the cuts. This is a Martin Scorsese movie. And as we, as we have said many times, man knows how to move a camera. Oh, yeah. What is your guys' favorite like shot that he did? throughout the whole movie for me i love the dog one the like 
dog is like focused and framing everything's moving around him. But I think my favorite one is when um, Papa George goes on stage and it's totally frontlit, so he's silhouetted. But usually they always oh, walk yeah. like straight underneath the camera. But he came out at an angle, centered himself, and then moved forward to light. And just, I like the, like, usually mm. it's just like slightly different from like the standard, like going to present into silhouette. Yeah. He comes in at the angle and it was just like such a like, oh, oh, where'd that come from? And dude, Ben Kingsley looks exactly like George Mies. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen, like, if you look at comparison pictures, he looks surprisingly like him. Did they and whiten him up for this? He looked really white. And usually he's like, not that white. I mean, I think he's white, except in Gandhi. Uh, probably because hey. I know him from Gandhi and, and ah. his name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, spends more time. Yeah, there. the camera work is, I, I'm not sure what my favorite shot is, but so this movie was shot in 3D. This was during the, the 3D craze, but it wasn't one of those converted later. It was intentionally designed to be 3D. So when I saw it in theaters, I saw it in 3D, and it was one of the most gorgeous uses I've ever seen. That makes like total sense. It knows sense. how to go through the space. It's not like depth back, but it's like coming out at you. I had heard that James Cameron saw the movie and said to Martin Scorsese, this is the best use of 3D, including like my own movies. This is the greatest I've ever seen. Including this movie Avatar that's going to come out next year. It's, <laughs> it's going to be a hit. And then the sequels are coming out in 2024. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, if, I don't know if you'll ever, ever get a chance to see this in 3D. But if you do, check it out. It's spectacular. Mm-hmm. My favorite shot is probably when he's following Papa George to try and get his notebook and he goes into Paris itself and it's it's haunting and it reminds me of like if you're a little kid and you walk into like a museum or something where everything is like full of dark wonder type things i loved just that entire walking scene it's very almost narnia-esque as he's walking that's mm. what it reminded me of so that was my favorite shot was just the walk down through the statues to the guy's house. I'm not sure what my favorite shot is. Perhaps it's either a favorite or an honorable mention is when Hugo and Isabel are in the library looking for that book about cinema. And there's just something really striking about the background because they're up on like the second floor. And so the background of the library is still in focus behind Hugo. So we have, we see like Hugo, like straight in the foreground, wide angle, I believe. And in the background is all this depth and sort of in focus, sort of not focus, semi-focus of the, the scale of the library that they're in. And that just sort of, that was my wake up call as if the movie were saying, you've really enjoyed the camera movement so far, haven't you? Look at this. And I was like, well, I guess I have a movie. Thank you very much. Look at it. You know what movie? You're right. Yeah. You know, I have conversations <laughs> with movie occasionally. Hey, man. Sometimes you got to talk to the movies. Mm-hmm. Speaking of movies, I started writing down all the movies they showed. And then after a while, I was like, I can't. They just show way too many. <laughs> I have at least but early on. Of some of the ones I have are... Safety Last, which I talked about. Harold Lloyd is hanging off the clock when they go to the cinema. Which Obviously, also... Trip to the Moon, which is a George Mies. Uh, did you guys end up watching that? Link I did. Sent you? Yeah, I watched yep. it later. That's fun. Uh, Apparently, the technically the first color movie ever because they 
hand colored mm. each frame individually. Mm. Is there a name for that? Just hand tinting. How is this color- yeah. colored by hand tinting? <laughs> <laughs> a train arrives at the station, which is the train coming, and the crowd goes, ah! Uh, exit from the Lumiere factory. Dancing Men, which is the first sound picture, actually. It's uh, the one where the two men are dancing and a guy is playing a violin. Was it not the jazz an- singer? No, this oh. is... This is technically because Edison had recorded the sound on a wax cylinder and it's like 15 second thing, but that's, and it was the first one to sync sound. Mm-hmm. Technically. <laughs> the kiss where there's the kiss and they show yeah, tolerance. Yeah, that's my least favorite part. And then they, I've known, I knew about that one, Ed. That just grosses me out. That was the, kiss? like the, it was because it's very unromantic kiss. Yeah. And he's like getting his mustache ready and then it's like, Something about the way it's shot. It's too close. But <laughs> his head is tilted weird. Early cinema. They didn't know. Yeah, they were just shooting stuff. Pornography. Yeah. <laughs> and, and thus the, uh, what's it called? The censorship board was created based on that <laughs> film alone. Whatever the early version of the MPAA is. Was. If you want to know more about that, Ace watch code. the film. This is not yet rated. This film is not yet rated. <laughs> <laughs> our, our most recommended film, but... Uh, and yeah it goes through so many other and i kept watching like oh man look at all of this old footage he just collected everything it was really great i enjoyed it a lot mm-hmm. but yeah i couldn't write it down because they just kept showing clip after clip after clip i was like i'm gonna never mind yeah. <laughs> i've seen the last like movie like real they do and it's like so many of his films spliced together yeah Ooh. apparently this dude had done according to the imdb 532 films and yeah a lot of them are lost because people weren't good at storing their old movies they were on certain film stock that was very flammable and degraded super mm-hmm. easy apparently was it in the movie that he had to sell off the film stock yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sold, a, sold a lot of his stuff to make chemicals or yeah. shoe heels mm-hmm. and then he had to watch as they walked by his that was really dark yeah like he's just sitting there staring at his life's work clacking by on on the heels as they go yeah Oh, but I'm glad that they that was found like shot. a bunch of old ones. Mm-hmm. Well, the heels, well, the heels walking was your favorite. Yeah, that like how the celluloid melting into mm. the chemical, the chemical being put into the mold, the mold becoming the heel of a shoe, and the shoe walking right by him as he watches his work go by. That was my favorite shot. I'll say that because that was really clever. Oh, so good. I think oh, thinking it- about it, my. F- favorite shot is when they're in the flashback and they're doing the underwater picture and they show like the water and all the mermaids and everything and these lobsters going by and then it pulls <laughs> back to reveal that it's just a, a fish tank in front of the camera it's just <laughs> like clever little stuff like that and all these amazing costumes and sets and really great to see the creativity and the like craftsmanship that went into those early yeah, and they, innovation when they it first showed don't think about it when the lobsters first showed up i'm like how are they doing the overlay at this point? And then like, I see <laughs> bubbles and like, Oh, they're definitely, this is a fish tank. They're definitely just dropping them in. And then it pulled it out. I'm like, that's exactly what they were doing. But yep. who thinks of that? Like, this is so new. And to think like, I'm putting a fish tank in front and we're doing Atlantis. Exactly. Like the dude was a magician. So he knew how to like use perspective mm-hmm. and stuff. It's weird that he wasn't like, I don't know like how popular he was at the time. I'm assuming very popular just because like how he said, like, these are how dreams are made. Yeah, it was I, pretty popular until World War mm. One, and then taste changed. Because I was thinking, like, my dreams aren't even that creative. 
But as soon as anyone uses the verbiage like, this is how dreams are made, or this is where dreams come true, you all of a sudden get whisked away and you're like, ah, yes, my dreams are exactly like this. I, too, was an automaton in my youth. (laughs) (laughs) Had anybody seen A Trip to the Moon before this? Me. Um, Yes. I'd seen the shot. I hadn't seen the whole movie. The iconic shot, the cut. Yeah, I was watching it again recently for this. And what I gathered from that movie, apart from how innovative and crazy it is, it's that a lot of people be losing their hats in that movie. Mm -hmm. And moon monsters explode pretty easily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was weird um i looked at like my reddit feed before i watched the movie and mm-hmm. there's a charlie chaplin clip that showed up like for old school cool mm-hmm. and they use that exact same clip in the movie i'm like oh, oh. <laughs> he really is that cool he's in the cinema again yeah, was, that, was that modern times i suspect or was it another i don't chaplin? recall no it was uh the kid oh yeah i was Dude. gonna write that down but then there were so many of them i stopped writing them down <laughs> it was the kid I also I like how it. they brought up Robin Hood and Hugo immediately brings up the movie, yeah. which was shot in a really cool town. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a really cool park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird oh. to see anti-Gandalf there. Came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, um, Christopher Lee is... I felt like he was ill-cast until like three scenes in with him. I'm like, oh, okay. No, he's good. He actually mm-hmm. has something to do instead of being the cranky book miser. Yeah, crank. I mean, he was a nice bookmaster. Yeah, uh, not but to he, Hugo at first. He's like, get this like, child out of my bookstore. <laughs> yeah, but he's because got that such kid a never used shampoo. Choice. He had the greasiest hair the entire time, and even when he went to the, he was in a suit and everything. His hair was still greasy, boy. Like I get your yeah, work, but that was hair grease that you put in there. Mm-hmm. That's it. purposeful. Some whole yeah, man. intentional grease. Yes, we a little can. cream, a little dab will do you. France. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. I love the automaton scenes. Just the focus on the clockwork and everything is just gorgeous. I have always been a sucker for clockwork things. Like, I really do have a watch I got from Switzerland. It's bare-faced, so all it has is, like, mm. the metal numbers on the outside, and you just see all the inner workings, and it's so cool. But I just, I love that type of stuff. The only part I didn't like about the movie was the out-of-nowhere fire in the museum. Mostly because the effect just looks really cheap for the rest of the movie. Mm. And it's literally out of nowhere. Yes. He like opens the yeah. door and it's like, ah, fire. Like the fire goes around the corner in such a weird fashion. Although to be fair, it was a kid's flashback. So maybe yeah. he yeah. remembered it as that sudden. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't exactly know. Because he was just told by drunk Uncle Claude that there was a fire. You know, oh, that's dead. true. Yeah. yeah. So he doesn't like know what happened. So he characters. just sort of, that's how he imagines it in his head. And so refuted, I mean, it can still be a, the worst part, but I think that part works for me because it's in Hugo's mind specifically and he doesn't know what happened. So he just has to sort of impose. My favorite part is um, Hugo having his um, hissy fit after <laughs> the automaton he stops. Set, man. <laughs> he was so he sad. Goes, <laughs> uh, uh, he goes and sits in the chair. It's like, like a little kid uh, doesn't know what to do. So he just starts hitting stuff because he's mad. <laughs> Never to, be, ah. to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, I was gonna say fair, he, his age is perfect for that. Yeah, <laughs> fair, he's like nine, and you still have meltdowns when you're nine. Yeah, especially if your parents died years before, and you were sort of raised, not raised, by a drunk uncle who just gave you a job and then left you mm-hmm. to parent yourself. So I'm gonna let that one go on you go. Also, it 
reminded me of meltdowns I've seen and maybe meltdowns I had when I was uh, when I was a youngin. <laughs> so it was well acted, although you calling to attention to it does make it funny. Another talking point is something we haven't talked about the entire time because it was so forgettable. Isabel, that character oh. is so one note. Yeah. Hmm. Like it's okay. It has nothing to do with Chloe Grace Moretz. Mm-mm. It's just the character wasn't given any development in the story. The only thing that she had going for her was like she wanted to go on an adventure because she hadn't been on one and she only lived through them through books. Yeah. But she has no development besides being a side plot to Papa George and being the ex yeah, that was the key. Basically the one that's going to connect Hugo and George Mies. I think she started strong and it kind of dropped off around the time George really took center stage. I think the fault in that is just the timing. Cause I mean, that's already a two hour, 17 minute movie or so. So it's already kind of getting stretched. And look, man, I blame the book on <laughs> I'm sure it was his fault. Yeah. I blame. Ah, yes. I, I like how Raw always complained about movie length when we watched the scene now. the length. It's the plot. It, it's the pacing. Were you but, guys weirded out that there was no like guns or, yes. you know, the F word? I mean, because I was, it was watching a Scorsese film. <laughs> there were no I mean, Italians. Yeah. If you didn't tell me it was a Scorsese film, I would never. No, I would, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't have worried, but like. No, really, I get a like, s- collaboration happened here. Not enough drugs in this one. Yeah. yeah. I gotta say, watching this movie, it did warm my heart with how just wholesome and uh, yeah. good times it was. And I love the film history. I got a little the teared best. up when um, Mama Jean started crying the first time when she was watching the movie. Yeah. Like, the, oh. like looking back on life and just reflecting on what was and like good having times. someone finally say something's beautiful after years of no one even knowing it existed. Yeah. yeah there were multiple times in this film where I teared up. It was just, I was just like, Oh, but most of it was like the shots where it was for obvious reason with the whole dad thing, but for the parts where it's not completely realistic, where they add in that bit of the childhood fantasy that reminds me of like Pan's labyrinth. So when they pull the drawer out of the armoire and it falls to the ground, and it busts open and it flies all around this tornado type thing out of nowhere that realistically all it probably would have been was just falling to the floor and then some papers spill out. But instead, the movie goes for that shot where it's all up in the air and it's it's very fanciful. And mm-hmm. it really Children's kind movie. of brings you into their mindset of a child, which I really liked without going overboard. Like they did with the automaton scene where Hugo. That that just it that creeped me out I so much. I love that scene. The human become the automatons giving me nightmares. And if I watched so this cool. as a child, oh. I would have not been able to sleep for a week. I just thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was cool. Usually I'm the one getting freaked out, so you know. Uh, also, I like creepy things, uh-huh. so <laughs> Yeah, we know. Um, oh, Robbie, like, speaking of creepy things, uh, apparently George Melies in 1896 made a film called The Devil's Castle which is the first horror movie in history. Oh, really? Yeah. And they made the a sequel word? called Devil's Moving Castle. <laughs> I, mean, I was thinking the Dolly movie. And uh, Trip to the Moon is considered the first sci-fi film ever. Oh, yeah, there you go. Lots of firsts with this guy. And that was way before they even had the concept of getting anything into space. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, yeah. I heard that all of his films are interconnected and there's little Easter eggs that you can look at that, they're, you know, they're all a part of this... Uh, 
Yeah, they all have mom and dad. a real Pixar yeah. situation. Yeah, no, it's a movie cinematic universe, and, uh, and Samuel Jackson <laughs> is in, in the end of every single one of them, and he talks to all like the nights. Oh, you gotta stuff, watch like, past the credits. Yeah, you gotta watch ah, past the credits. That they didn't include in the movie. Uh, it was yeah, on the I'd other like reel. To talk to you about the the talkies initiative. They weren't they weren't as clever about it yet. So just after the credits, Mama John's like. So this is connected to the next movie. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta watch this movie next, and then you know chronologically, and it only kind of makes sense if you watch it in chronological order. <laughs> they made well, Jude Law look so much different than like what he usually looks like. Oh yeah, that was a surprise. It startled me because I know him from um, the Grand Budapest Hotel, mm. and then seeing him in this, I'm like, oh, he looks completely different. What are you doing, Jude Law? Acting. <laughs> exactly. He's coming in for a quick cameo and that was the delight. Job. Yeah, just he, quick enough to he, like, uh, that Jude Law? Oh, he's dead. Man, that's Then he sad. eats out with the fireball. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think. George Milliers, maybe he mm-hmm. had the idea to do the moon movie originally. Mm-hmm. Because it's Hollentani it built was before based he built the camera. off of uh, Jules Verne novel. He got well, the idea from reading Jules Verne. Oh, which they talked about earlier in the movie. He took a, took that apart to make the camera, and the automaton already was able to. He do said with spare drawing. parts, yep, that he had from when he was making the automaton. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, but the automaton. He, so he originally had the idea for the missile in the moon when he made the automaton, and then he made the camera afterward. So I was wondering, like, I probably based the movie off of the automaton's picture in this movie. I think he reprogrammed the drawing after the movie was made. That sounds horrendous. <laughs> a lot of meticulous work. Yeah. Yep. Jules Verne is one of my favorite classic authors. And what the my one of my favorite things about his work is that he always focused on the newest technologies at the time. And he was basically the first steampunk author because he did a lot of sci-fi at the time with Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, Around the World in 80 Days, The 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But I really liked that they drew those parallels because a lot of our early science fiction type stuff did have a lot of those influences there. So that would make a lot of sense if he had a lot of influence from Jules Verne, mm-hmm. especially being Parisian. I like how their idea to get to the moon is like, well, we'll just fire a giant cannon at it. That makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we'll get in the we'll get in the projectile. We'll fire a cannon and we'll get there. I like how they what? take off their scholarly wizard robes and put on their fancy clothes to go to the moon. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and as soon as they get to the moon, it's like, time to take a nap. That was a long trip. <laughs> yeah, jet lag. They knew. You know, it's... Moon lag. A moon lag. <laughs> Cannon lag. Did you see when he turned his umbrella into a mushroom? That was dope. Jordan Neal was high as oh, yeah. fuck, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. I'm sad True Griffiths died, the guy who played Monster Frick. All the coloring. In 2013, yeah, so only like two years after. I totally blanked on it. I thought you were talking about um, Christopher Lee. Did you guys know that Christopher Lee was the lead singer of a death metal band? Uh, what? When he was uh, in no, his I 90s? did know that. I did know that. Oh and my god. It, and it is rad. That's probably where his, <laughs> his like vocal growl came from. It's the fact that his vocal cords were shot. <laughs> no, this was when he was old. Mm-hmm. What? Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Like, think about his voice like, when, he was when 90 he's old. And shit. I'm looking this yeah. up after this. Do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. I would like to highlight Sasha Baron Cohen as the inspector, who is sort yeah. of like the glue of this movie. Sort of mm. like, 
I feel like his scenes get intercut with Hugo's scenes. He sort of feels like the leader of the B and C plots. And so oh, yeah. keeps, keeps the pace up. Anyway, in that scene where he catches uh, Isabel and Hugo, he's like, where's your parents? And they're telling their story. And Maximilian is snarling. I just really like that line where like Maximilian is growling at Hugo. And he says, hmm, it seems Maximilian doesn't like the cut of your jib, little man. He is disturbed <laughs> by your physiognomy. <laughs> now, why would he dislike your visage, young man? Just stuff of that verbiage is just delightful. Also, there's this scene where Hugo and the inspector have a scene, and then they exit, and then Hugo looks back to look at the inspector, and the inspector is climbing up these pegs. I presume yeah. to get to the second floor because elevators haven't been invented yet or any sort of accessibility. Oh, and he um, can't walk I, up the stairs with his leg brace. That yeah, makes sense. I, I presume that, but just like the, the energy of the scene before is like the inspector really got the one over on Hugo and he sort of just like does a proverbial mic drop and he's like, yeah, take that. I'm going to go over and work out now. And he just like is over there <laughs> pumping some iron, doing some pull-ups. And like I was, as he was going up the pegs, I really want him to just go back down and go back up because... At first, you don't really know what you're looking at because it sort of just looks like a rock wall has emerged. That's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, why is he climbing a rock wall? Yeah, but like just like two minutes before I was thinking about this, like, oh, you know, I bet that was to get to the second floor. Um, That makes a lot of sense. I like how that character is basically a silent film comedian, mm -hmm. even though he talks and stuff. He does have a lot of those comic moments, like when Hugo is hiding behind uh, the pillar and he's right there and he kind of stretches and like Hugo ducks real quick. And there's Mm -hmm. just a lot of like little movements like that. He gets his leg brace caught on the moving train and stuff. Just he ran into the damn cello instead of the cake. You know, that guy has a lot of (laughs) physical comedy to go along with his. Yeah. But he also had that moment of very much like vulnerability when his uh, leg locks up the first time he goes to talk to um, Lizette. And it was like, yeah, the like other silence after his thing like squeaked was just like devastating to him. It's like, oh, it was very humanizing for his character because up till that point, up till that point, he's kind of stuck in kind of that villainous role type. So it it was, it was very much a quick way of being like, oh, we we should still have empathy for this character because damn, that's got to hurt. It's their shared story. They both realize they're both cogs in the same machine. That's the story of humanity. It's like like poetry, it rhymes. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a theme I wanted to bring up, or motif, or just an idea. The the idea of finding family. I feel like a lot of this movie is about trying to find family or your place, you know? Mm -hmm. Like the inspector is trying to get with the flower girl because he's trying to find this family, and like the other couple with the dog is trying to get together, and Hugo's trying to find people who he can be familiar with because his family is gone. And there's a lot of, what do you guys think about that? Wholesome. I like it. And it gave me the warm fuzzies, you know? And I think it really hammers home right at that moment where Papa George stops the inspector and goes, Oh wait, that boy, that boy belongs to me or that, that boy is mine. And it's sort of like that ending that you were hoping for the whole time, which is, you sort of assume it's going to happen, but still, it's it's real nice to see it come to fruition. Because I presume that then Hugo gets adopted by 
by the yeah. the, the Moyes. He certainly yeah. goes to the expo. Yeah, he goes to the expo. I don't when the train station was there, which is sort of interesting. The invite, yeah, because they're all connected. They yeah. never yeah. A- interacted like with George himself. That's true, but I imagine everyone being there every day, they've at least conversed. Yeah, and you know, Maybe. months later, I'm pretty sure at that point it is revealed to everyone who works at the train station, like, oh, Hugo is the one keeping the clocks mm-hmm. going, and you know, and that sort of would be the the tipping. Yeah, imagine you see together. a guy at work every day that you don't really talk to, but you see him every day, and you're like, hey, this guy has a bunch of old movies. Let's go watch. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you get invited um, to a fancy dancy thing. You go. I wanted the inspector and uh, the flower girl to adopt Hugo. Oh, oh, that would be really cute too. <laughs> it would. I like how um, he creates a fancy leg brace for him at the end, where he doesn't lock cool. up anymore and he gets full mobility. I totally saw that foreshadowed. I was like, he's fixing things, and this is going to get fixed, and <laughs> that there, he is definitely going to fix it for him, and that will be the redeeming moment. Also, his dog's going to die because he first oils his leg, and the dog licks the oil. He's slowly killing his dog. Well, no, maybe sad. he was poor, <laughs> and he couldn't afford oil, so it was just bacon grease. Yeah, it's just bacon grease. Maybe. I like that theory, yeah. And Maximilian- <laughs> Let's go with the one that doesn't kill him. <laughs> yeah. Talking about theory- why does Hugo have to steal when Uncle Claude would still be getting a paycheck? True, where does because that money go? Because the clock never stopped working for the three months he was dead. It wouldn't go to him, though. He was only stealing the cogs and gears and stuff. No, he's, he so also stole the, the croissant and milk. Yeah, he stole a well, that's croissant true. during the yeah. like, ooh scene, the arm for, thingamajig. For the food part, I would say that's probably... Because at the time... Wait a minute. Like, when he steals that croissant, is that a dream? Is that no, in the dream? No, that was real. No, that was oh, real. dang. Never mind. It, was, it actually pairs well with the kid that got caught because basically the kid that got caught did the exact same thing. The only difference was he didn't have a spot where he could work as a cog, which I thought, again, was kind of driving home another one of the points. The inspector the cop is like, oh, he's loitering in this empty can. And he yeah. Was, uh, oh, yeah. Ro- trespassing <laughs> in the bag. Yeah, yes. it, it reminded me of that list of things from uh, the hunt for the wilder people. Like, yeah. He's mean stuff, stuff, loitering, burning stuff, kicking stuff, throwing things. Yeah. Loitering in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> loitering in the bag. Very what hasn't he done? I'm yeah. just saying, though, Similar. that guy littered, that was free reign. I don't feel like there's any need to get arrested there. Like I said... I think it was just because he was a dirty, filthy orphan. Yeah. Back in our review of the Hunt for the Wilder People, I think I said that, like, of all the heartwarming tropes, my favorite is found family. It's mm. one of my favorite storylines. And so... What I really liked about this one is that a lot of times it makes out to be like, okay, well, there's only, you know, one way to do this and we're going to, we're going to fix it back till everybody falls into their roles. But what I really liked about this one was that it was more open. So it wasn't just, you know, now he has a mom and dad and a sister, but the people in the station itself is now interacting with him like a fellow cog of the plot. So he works with them and that allows things to continue working. But, um, yeah, so I, I just, I think that this was very heartwarming of a movie and I was very happy that you chose it. Well, I got a question for you. What? Would you recommend this movie? Under what circumstances? Nick. That's me. <laughs> yeah. I would, uh, I would recommend this movie. It's a nice little feel good movie. Really cool film history. Sasha Baron Coden is like a, uh, a family friendly Mr. Tenardier. 
that's a lame is thing. I Leave suppose me alone. so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it took me a bit to register, but yeah, I think, yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's very enjoyable. Um, it is a kid's movie. So I don't know. It depends on who your audience is, but like just the film knowledge you get from it is really fun. So I yeah, but not like inherently aimed at kids. It's just yes. a story about children that. Yeah, yeah. I would, yeah, I would say that like this is one of those rare movies that, as I see, are movies that still prove that PG is good for everyone and mm. not just kids. Looking I, at you, pretty much every PG movie that's come out since. Yeah, <laughs> just, I think you know, it's mostly PG just because... doesn't mean children. It means everyone. Just, uh, um, just food for thought. Rental guidance suggested. Yeah. I think most it's because most of our movies we watch are uh, not R or like yeah. uh, we've had R and two PGs very um, violent and adult themes. And then I transition to this, like even in Spider-Verse, it was like a lot of action. And this was just like plot. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. Although there is action. There's a lot there of chases and yeah. I would trains going through the. Yeah. And that boy crashing out of windows and stuff. A, a tabaton. Yeah. And he hangs from a clock just like in. Safety last. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway Caleb, I feel like you were question. in the middle of. Would you um, recommend this movie in one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was. Yeah, I was pretty much saying, yeah, for, for all the reasons that we've talked about thus far, uh, yes, I would recommend this movie pretty much under any circumstance. It's a movie that continues to evolve as it goes through. I think that I enjoyed a lot of the mysterious aspects, like, oh, you know, why is Hugo. Uh, why is Hugo here? What's his story? And oh, okay, well that got answered quick. Well, now what's what's up with the, what's up with uh, Papa Jean? What is what's it? Papa George. I keep saying Papa Jean. George. Papa, it's, it's, uh, what's up with Papa John? How come he has so many pizza pies? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want to get into that yet. Yeah. Uh, what's up canceled? with Papa George? What's his deal? And so I just enjoyed the the mystery, and there's uh, a lot of cute moments, a lot of wholesome moments. So some great camera work, some fun gags, some laughs. You know, it's got a little bit of everything. And uh, as a final note, PG is for everyone, not just children. Think about it. Less is poltergeist. <laughs> and if you want to know more about the rating system, you can watch the movie. Have we mentioned this to you before? Delightful. Robbie. I would absolutely recommend this. It's a great film. It's a really fun show to watch. And it just, it goes to show that you don't have to have all the rough action and the cussing and the dramatic tension of like the Godfather films to still see how great of a director Scorsese is with his shot composition, the choreography, the the cinematography was gorgeous. So on that level alone, I would recommend it. But also just because the plot it blends genres very nicely and all in all it's a great movie for to watch by yourself or with your family i would also recommend this movie it is beautifully composed and put together martin scorsese knows how to make a movie and this is his love letter to it i love the film history i love the performances the music's great the interconnected story is all great apparently this was a very split movie i think that people say when they say they didn't like it is because they didn't expect this from scorsese so I think they were just taken aback because I think it's a really beautiful film. I mean, it was nominated yeah. for 11 Oscars. It won a couple. Yep, won five for cinematography, yeah. sound mixing, sound editing, and visual effects and art direction. 
Yeah. yeah. So yeah, overall great movie. I say check it out. Yeah. So that was our discussion of Hugo. Next week is Nick's pick. Nick, what are we watching next week? We will be watching Ordinary World, starring People. Billy Joel Armstrong, Fred Armisen, and Judy Greer, and it's directed by Lee Kirk. All right. Hmm. I don't know what that is. That'll be fun. What is it called? What this is? Ordinary World. Ordinary World. It basically is Billy Joel Armstrong's wife because it's just gonna follow a punk rocker who is reflecting on his punk rock days. Oh, sweet. Well, forty. That'll be cool. Ooh. So feel free to watch that with us and listen to us next week. Thank you for listening. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We are Four Film Fellas on both of those. F O U R Film Fellas. Rate us five stars on all the podcast thingies. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye, fellas. Goodbye.